0: Shaharazani and in the news, a new government in Israel. On Sunday, June 13th, Israel's Knesset is due to hold a vote on a new coalition government in Israel, the Lapid Bennett government. If it wins the vote, the government will be sworn in on that same day, ending Prime Minister Netanyahu's long rule in Israel. If they fail, Israel may be heading for another round of elections. Much has been said and written about the fragile nature of this coalition, composed of elements ranging from the religious right all the way to the Islamic movement. What are its chances of success and what's next for Israel? To get some insights into this situation, I am absolutely thrilled to have with me all the way from Israel, Khabib Retigur. Khaviv is an Israeli journalist and a political correspondent and analyst for the Times of Israel. In the past, he served as director of communications for the Jewish Agency and the Jewish world correspondent for the Jerusalem Post Haviv it's an absolute pleasure thank you so much for joining us on JBS
1: thanks for having me Shaha
0: so this quagmire that's called the Israeli political uh, <laughs> arena let's first of all if you could guide us through it what's supposed to happen on June 13th how does it work
1: um, the um, this week um, Yair Lapid had the mandate from the president uh, for the last uh, month uh, and uh, the mandate for the president told him, you can now form a coalition. Uh, You're the only one who is now charged with forming a coalition. It took him uh, four weeks to negotiate a coalition Uh, on the last day. about 15 minutes before the end of the last day, which is how it usually happens. He told the president, I have a coalition um, and uh, the deals weren't all signed, but all the parties are given their agreement. By the way, unprecedented number of parties, this will be a coalition of eight parties all sitting together in a government. Um, and uh, now uh, the speaker of the Knesset, who is still a Likud appointee, uh, uh, voted in by the Knesset as speaker, but it represents the Likud, uh, has agreed to have the vote on the swearing-in of the new government, on the Knesset voting its confidence of the new government, which is the official moment that a new government is established on Sunday. And So Sunday is the vote uh, at 4 p.m. Israel time, very late at night in the United States, I think that's 11 p.m. Eastern, Um, And uh, it is, as you say, this is a coalition that on a good day with everyone rowing in the same direction uh, has 61 out of 120 seats. So, uh, you know, it's not just that the vote to establish this government, this new coalition will be a close one. Every single vote for the duration of the lifespan of this eight faction coalition uh, will be a close one.
0: You know, mavens of Israeli politics like you and others remember the uh, famous incident with uh, Shimon Peres in 1991 when he was trying to vote in a government of his own after concluding his partnership with Likud. And in that case, he expected to have the votes and then ended up with two, I believe, ultra-Orthodox members of Knesset missing who, you know, went AWOL and just literally hid in the woods until uh, the vote was over and the government never came to be. Is there any chance for a similar scenario now?
1: There is certainly a chance um, emphatically. Um, Netanyahu has been um, just very, very aggressively pursuing um, defectors from the New Hope party, um, from the Yamina party uh, and frankly, he'll take any defectors from any party, right? In the last 12 years, he has had coalitions with Yeshatid itself, itself, Yair Lapid's party, centrist, secularist party, uh, with a Labour Party for four years, from 2009 to 2013. The head of the Labour Party, who then left Labour, but remained in Netanyahu's coalition, uh, Ehud Barak was his defense minister. Netanyahu will take anyone who would prevent this, this government from being formed. He is a fighter. He fights to the end. Um, so yes, the simple answer is, uh, there is a very, very serious possibility that it won't happen. What is astonishing, unexpected, and everyone was betting against it, is that it's happening at all. Uh, and, and that's the thing that, that is both surprising and takes explaining.
0: Right. Um, it's, it's, when you look at the personalities you mentioned and the different parties that partnered with Netanyahu in the past, it seems quite visible that many of the parties to this government have collaborated in the past with Netanyahu. And at some point that collaboration ended and then supposedly it seems like they all came together to establish a government without him. So my question to you is, Khabib, is there a personal element to the cohesion of this new government? And if so, what is it?
1: I think there's an, it's profoundly a personal element. Uh, we should say there is at this moment a government in Israel, an interim government left over from, you know, the last time a government was sworn in, in May of 2020. Um, and that government includes, of course, Defense Minister Benny Gantz under uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, there is an economy minister at this moment, Abed-Amir Peretz, who was, until uh, two months ago, the head of the Labour Party. Uh, Labour is currently in the Netanyahu government that is going to potentially be sworn, right, be a... Uh, Uh, replaced on Sunday. So uh, most of the new coalition are people who have been can sit with Netanyahu, have sat with Netanyahu over the last decade, um, and and will in future presumably sit again with the Likud party. Um, so it really is about Netanyahu the man and about Netanyahu the man becoming no longer someone that these people are willing to sit with uh, for reasons that have to do with Netanyahu the individual person, right? And not uh, certain you know policy. Uh, the Yamina party, the New Hope party, are are actually composed of old Likudniks. Who don't now aren't willing to sit anymore in a coalition with Netanyahu. I uh, wrote a piece today in the Times of Israel that argues that essentially what Netanyahu's um, uh, problem is uh, is that he has bec- he has developed a, a way of doing politics in Israel. You can't win an election on election day. You win an election at the coalition negotiating table uh, with the parties voted into the parliament on election day. No, there's you know, on election day itself, you don't know who's prime minister, you only find that out a month or you know, sometimes three months later when all of the wheeling and dealing is done. Um, and and what Netanyahu has done over the years, it you know, he 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 once invited uh, Shaul Mufaz of the Kadima party, nobody needs to remember that. Um, in back in May of 2012 into a unity government which then immediately collapsed, but also caused Yamina to be deeply undermined and in the 2013 election to almost disappear. Um, He invited, he he has uh, set up deals and coalitions and unity um, uh, promises and promises of positions of power in governments with Avigdor Lieberman of the Israel-Baitano party, um, with Naftali Bennett of the Yamina party, with Gideon Saar of the New Hope party, uh, all at various points in their career and has reneged again and again and again on his promises to all these people. Most famously last year, of course, he formed a unity government with Benny Gantz, in which Benny Gantz becomes Prime Minister in rotation after 18 months. The only way to avoid that, they changed the basic laws, they passed new legislation, created new institutions just to as a way of assuring Benny Gantz that the Netanyahu had no way to escape the rotation. And the only way left by law for Netanyahu to escape the rotation that he promised Benny Gantz between March and May of last year is if the government falls because it cannot pass a budget. And so for the 2020 fiscal year, the 2020 fiscal year became the very first year in the history of the state of Israel in which the government failed to pass a state budget. Netanyahu would not allow a state budget to pass because it was his way of, forgive the word, finagling out of a deal he signed and for which constitutional basic laws were changed just to show Benny Gantz that he wouldn't lie and cheat his way out of it, and then he lied and cheated his way out of it. Netanyahu's problem right now is that he's gone to uh, every party leader in this eight-party coalition, including the Islamist Round party, and he has promised Endless budgets and, and positions and posts. He's gone to individual backbencher MKs in the smallest parties in this coalition and told them, I guarantee you a place on the Likud list in the next election. You won't definitely won't be erased from the Knesset for doing it. Just come and join me. He needs one person, two people, three people, and Bennett and Lapid don't have a coalition. And he has discovered in that process over the last two months, I'll stop talking now, <laughs> that um, nobody believes him anymore. When nobody believes you, you can't negotiate.
0: First of all, talk away because it's really a joy listening to you. You know, few are those who really understand um, the ins and outs of Israeli politics. So thank you again for this. But I want to push you a little bit on this point. Politicians make promises. Politicians promise things amongst themselves and to the public. And sometimes reality or other considerations get in the way. It's nothing new and it's nothing unusual. So what is it about... Netanyahu's promises that turned him into such a, um, I want to say, poisonous politically that nobody would touch him, that nobody would sign a deal with him. What is it? When did that point uh, was reached in in Netanyahu's career? What happened there? Because again, it's not unusual.
1: You're absolutely right. Uh, Not only that, um, breaking promises is really important in politics. Um, for the functioning of a, of a country uh, if if everything that a politician thinks they need to say in a campaign they then believe they must implement when in government uh, government policies will become very bad and 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 very silly and countries will go to war for no reason. And 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 we don't want that. We want politicians-
0: Even, even now, even now the leaders of this coalition, you know- but Are breaking Bennett promises. Others, they all made a lot of promises, which they reneged on. So-
1: Bennett what, made a promise three days before election day, not to go into a government with lapita's prime minister, right? which he has now done, right? The act of establishing this government is a broken promise. I would say two things. One, um, there's a big difference between lying to voters and lying to coalition partners. And lying to coalition partners is worse. Now, voters are more important than politicians. So why is lying to the voters not as, not as problematic as lying to, to politicians? The reason is very simple. Um, you need to build coalitions to produce a government and to run the country. And building a coalition means sitting around the table and having an exchange, right? A quid pro quo. You will get the defense ministry. I will get the finance ministry. I get my agenda in terms of the state budget. You get to run your agenda in terms of geopolitics, national security. If you think I'm lying to you at the coalition table, this whole exchange can't happen. And we can't form a coalition. It doesn't matter that I'll promise you the prime ministership. Netanyahu, over the last two weeks, has several times promised Gidonsal of the New Hope Party, first run as prime minister. You'll be prime minister immediately, he says to Gidonsal. I'll be prime minister a year or a year and a half later. Don't worry about me. Immediately you'll be prime minister. Gidonsal has received those calls from Netanyahu and has said to him, flat out, no and hung up. And The reason he said no and hung up isn't because Gidonsal doesn't want to be prime minister. He has one more seat, by the way, than um, than. Well, he has the same number of seats as Naftali Bennett, right? Naftali Bennett's about to be prime minister on Sunday. He wants to be prime minister, but he knows, to the depths of his soul, that between the promise on the phone call, and the vote in the Knesset, Netanyahu will make it all go disappear. Right? It, it's simply not reliable. And if you, if it's not reliable, it's a rational actor problem. Um, uh, a classic right? if it's not a reliable uh, promise, then you can't negotiate. Netanyahu has nothing to offer because no one knows if it'll come true. That's very different from telling voters you want to do something and then not doing it because that's aspirational. Politicians who make campaign promises aren't lying in any simple sense. That Netanyahu in 2009 when he was running uh, to come back into power after 10 years out of power, um, and won the 2009 election, he made a solemn promise to oust the Hamas government in Gaza. And a big video, everyone's been sharing that video around lately, uh, you know, because Naftali Bennett's lying and Leir Lapid's lying. Don't forget Netanyahu also lies to vote. right? He made the solemn promise to oust Hamas in Gaza. Then he becomes prime minister, and it's one of these classic moments where what you see inside, right, as prime minister is different from what you see as opposition leader in a campaign. Now. Does that mean Netanyahu doesn't wish he could oust Hamas? He does wish he could oust Hamas. It's not that he was lying to voters that he doesn't want to oust Hamas, it's that there's a lot more things to consider when you're actually prime minister than when you're campaigning. So the gap between promises to voters and actual implementation is a gap between aspiration and the harsh realities. At the coalition table, if you can't be trusted to deliver the things you promised, there is no coalition dis- negotiation. Netanyahu's problem isn't just that um, he, he, he can't build a coalition, or that some, some right wing parties don't like him anymore. Netanyahu's problem is that he literally has nothing to sell because nobody knows if the next morning it'll still be on offer, right? So he made tremendous offers to Ram, to the Islamist party. And Mansoor Abbas gave an interview on June 3rd in which he said on national television, at the moment of decision, I had to ask myself, are they going to keep the commitments? Likud, no. Yair Lapid, yes, so I'm with Yair Lapid. There's, it's just that simple. So um, Netanyahu has become unreliable and, and passed the tipping point into no longer useful as a coalition partner.
0: You know, Khabib, um, in the collective memory, when we go into the library of the narratives, uh, we remember Netanyahu's interview on Israeli television in March of 2020, where he promised before entering the uh, agreement with Benny Gantz, no tricks and no shticks. Do you think he underestimated the, the impact of that um, uh, betrayal of, of the Benny Gantz agreement? Do you think um, that he, you know, he felt he could get away with it and then he ended up you know, meeting his, his political end to a degree as a result?
1: I think that's exactly what happened because he, you know, he said no tricks and no sticks, I definitely will keep this deal. And then the trick and the stick that he ended up pulling to escape the deal was to my mind, forgive me, I think Netanyahu is a very worthy um, political leader and choice for voters. Um, I think that of most Israeli politicians, uh, the more you know these people, the more you, you come to understand that they genuinely love the country. Uh, I say that before saying something very mean about Netanyahu, but I, I, I don't think it's forgivable. I think it is a profound betrayal of, the, of public service, regardless of what side you're on and what party you like, that, that the, the shtick that he pulled to prevent Benny Gantz from, from getting his rotation, was to not pass a state budget. A state budget is such a fundamental uh, uh, responsibility of a parliament and of a political leader, and, and it didn't pass. And, and That has profound ramifications for Israelis. The school year started last September, and for the first month, the, the budget hadn't been passed uh, for youth at risk programs. So something like 5,000 youth at risk were kicked out of the programs. The programs didn't start for the first month of the school year until the Knesset noticed and passed a special spending bill just for the youth at risk program. They're building a fast train to Eilat. Eilat is this far south, hard scrabble, Likud, working-class town. And until it gets a fast train, it's going to remain hard scrabble working-class because people can't get there. That train hasn't moved, the construction on that train hasn't moved for two years because we have not been able to pass a state budget. Um, Netanyahu has hurt people by not passing the state budget in meaningful and important ways. And there was a shtick to avoid a promise he solemnly made and wrote into Israel's basic laws. So um, he thought he could get away with it because he gotten away with it in the past, but it got so egregious that he simply no longer has something to sell to Naftali Bennett to Yair Lapid he could promise Yair Lapid 3 years prime minister Netanyahu 1 year and all of Yair Lapid's policy fantasies come true and it won't matter because Yair Lapid simply doesn't believe the promise will exist the next morning that is fundamentally what what we're witnessing here that's what brought Netanyahu down and it's it's a tragedy it's almost a classic greek tragedy of hubris you know
0: there is, there is absolutely that element. It's like every politician who drives up to Jerusalem see the political corpse of Benny Gantz and said, I'll never be that. Even though Benny Gantz really resurrected himself as some, somewhat of a phoenix. But I wanna ask you, Netanyahu maxed out on all of his credit cards. But supposedly, looking at the political map, if assuming Netanyahu is no longer heading Likud, at the end of the day, Likud has 30 seats in the Knesset, 30 seats, you know, much more than any other party by far. Yair Lapid is behind him with 17. So if Netanyahu steps down from Likud, potentially, and before Sunday, he comes out and says, I, I get it, I understand, no longer am I the leader of Likud, I'm going to be a regular MK, and let's say somebody else steps forward, Nir Barkat or someone else. What happens then? Is there a chance to undermine the new coalition by making such a a move?
1: If in the next four days, Netanyahu resigns uh, as a trick to attempt to torpedo the establishment of the new government on Sunday, um, I suspect that nothing will change. No one will believe him. They'll find a way uh, to just reappoint him a week later, uh, head of Likud. Um, they offered these kinds of deals before, they would appoint um, Yariv Levine, the Knesset speaker, who uh, was well pretty well-liked uh, Likud person inside the party, um, and also loyal to Netanyahu uh, as party leader, just to make, just to get, you know, and Giddensar to come back in. Uh, none of it has, has worked and no one will believe it. Um, and and that's, that's really the story. Um, but uh, the real fascinating question to me going forward is, but what actually happens when Netanyahu actually leaves? Because he actually can't win the premiership anymore. Because Likud, and then we have this enormous Likud party, fairly consolidated with a good ground game, a grassroots operation, some extremely competent politicians, people like Avi Dichter and Yuli Edelstein, and, and, and just all up and down the ranks. Um, do they come back to power? And I, I suspect that Likud's future is, is, a, is a strong one, for reasons you said, that it's a popular party, it's a party with a real you know, serious uh, uh, constituency that's stuck by them through thick and thin, um, and uh, you know, don't write off Likud, uh, but I, I think Netanyahu has, has overstayed his welcome.
0: And there you have uh, potentially the new government that's going to come in that represents complete, you know, the texture of Israeli society from its different corners. And I want to ask you a, a quick question about what to be ex- what's to be expected when it comes to the U.S. And what I refer to is the interview that uh, former Ambassador Dermer gave a few weeks ago in which he said that the focus should be on Christian support for Israel rather than Jewish support for Israel. And many people attest to the fact that Dermer and Netanyahu are very close and they're you know, their thinking is alike. Uh, what do you expect the reality to be vis a vis the American Jewish community from Foreign Minister Yair Lapid and this new uh, government headed by Naftali Bennett?
1: Naftali Bennett's been part of his childhood in North America, in the US, and Canada. Um, and at one point, his, his family were actually members in a conservative synagogue, I believe. Yair Lapid, um, back when he was a very popular talk show host, um, used to call himself reform. Um, he meant something different by the word than it's than the reform movement in the United States. It, it just it has a few different connotations. But he's essentially a kind of sort of traditional likes Jewish tradition, likes the Jewish religion, but also is extremely secular uh, kind of a guy. Uh, and he uses a term that that has its roots for him, at least in in the American uh, Jewish world. Um, these are two people, very, very, um, uh, w- with real deep affinity for American Jews. They know something about the Jewish diaspora. They know, for example, that American Jews are something like eighty percent of all Jews who aren't Israelis. Uh, so I-, I think we're going to see a lot of uh, concern for uh, American Jewish sensibilities, a real deep desire to com- to have a conversation. And I have to also say, when Bennett was uh, education minister in Netanyahu's government from 2015 to 2019. Um, And as education minister, he was, if I'm not mistaken, the first, but certainly among the very few, even if not the first, uh, to introduce a curriculum about the Jewish diaspora into the Israeli education system. Israeli school children uh, learn a great number of class hours on dead diasporas, Uh, mainly the diasporas that their grandparents are all refugees who came to Israel from, but they don't learn a lot about living diasporas, and that's something that uh, a lot of us have been concerned with over the years and have advocated. Naftali Bennett uh, actually wants uh, and has tried to develop curriculum within the Israeli education system about American Jews, about living diasporas. So I think we're going to see a completely different sense of things. They they care about the diaspora communities, beyond the narrow politics and beyond the questions of how do I influence the White House and things like that. That's that's my suspicion.
0: Chaviv, correct me if I'm mistaken, but as education minister, I believe he famously visited a conservative school in Manhattan when he visited New York, and he came under heavy criticism by the ultra-Orthodox. I'm not sure as harsh as we've heard in the last couple of days, the statements made by the Ashkenazi and Sephardic ultra-Orthodox against Bennett, but definitely came under heavy criticism from them. Do you remember?
1: I, I do remember, and he also um, was the primary advocate in the in the government uh, for the pluralistic prayer plaza at the Western Wall. Um, he's very right wing, um, but you know these people are complicated. He's the uh, liberal end of the far right. Uh, in Israel, and on questions of Jewish unity, he personally is Orthodox. I trust him on that. The ultra-Orthodox claim otherwise. I, I happen to believe people when they tell me they're Orthodox, um, but uh, but he does have this belief that there is this, you know, Jewish people, and it is a unified thing, and he serves, you know, all of it, and he is loyal to all of it, and that includes the Reform, the Conservative, and the ultra-Orthodox, and people who disagree with him. So. Um, I think I think in that sense American Jews, especially the liberal streams, but also the, the Orthodox and the Ultra Orthodox will find a very, very open door, not only with Natalia Bennett, also with Yair Lapid.
0: You know, um, let's talk for a minute about the Israeli sauce. When you look into the uh, composition of this coalition, and again, if I were that alien landing on Earth, I would never think anything like this could work. You know, looking at the personalities and the factions they represent, like you said, the Islamic movement all the way to the liberal end of the far right. Um, but if if it works, what's the secret? What's going to make it work? What is this Israeli secret sauce that makes, you know, turns the wheel of such a coalition government?
1: The Israeli coalition table has always been a place where all the different factions and fractured bits and pieces and tribes and angry divi- divisions of Israeli society come to the table to talk and to negotiate. Uh, We have seen government, left-wing governments that had certain elements that made funding for settlements rise. We have seen right-wing governments that had certain elements that supported left-wing agendas because they were in the coalition. Uh, Israeli coalitions have always been, there's never been a single party that had 61 seats in the Knesset and could just not have a coalition government. Um, and, And that's really important for Israel's history. Haredim, Haredi parties come to the table to obtain funding for their Institutions for their education system, and in doing so, also um, co- become part of Israeli society. Negotiate with Israeli society. An ultra-orthodox interior minister, aria Deri, has to accept that in Tel Aviv, people are more liberal and secular, and is and 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 in Elad, which is an ultra-orthodox city, people are ultra-orthodox. And so, um, the coalition table is where all of Israel's very very divided tribes come together. To have this conversation. We've seen governments with very secularist parties like Israel Beitano and the Ultra Orthodox sit together for years, with the Labour Party and the and the far right sit together for years. Um, if anything, this government, you know, it's it's so startling just how broad the spectrum is in this government. But, but that's what Israeli governments have always been. They've always been fractious tribes coming together. They are giving um, Yamina a settlements ministry. Nobody quite knows what it is, but it's something having to do with Yamina worrying about settlements. And they're giving the labor party the transportation ministry, and labor is looking into whether it can move some funding from West Bank roads to public transportation in the center, right? It's gonna pull to their tribe. The tribes sit together at the coalition. It's always tense, but it's always worked. potentially this could work. This could be a stable government. We see these kinds of disparities of gaps in the past, never quite so extreme. There's never been an Islamist Arab party in the coalition before. So they're breaking ground, but they're breaking ground in a way that Israeli politics has always functioned. Uh, So I I think it'll work. I think Israeli politics knows how to do this. This is what the Israeli coalition system is. It is where tribes meet.
0: Right. Khabib, it's been an absolute, absolute pleasure having you. Thank you so much for joining us. Your insights have been wonderful. I really do feel like I understand the situation as I'm sure do everybody who watched you tonight.
1: I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you all for watching and to all stay safe, stay healthy and stay happy. We all pray for some political stability in Israel and it remains to be seen what transpires in the ultimate drama called the Israeli political scene. I'd like to thank our director, Sloan Copeland, JBS's managing director, Dara Golob, our technical manager, Michael Cayley, transmission manager, John McDivitt, and to our wonderful producer of In the News, Carol Lilianthal. For JBS, I'm Shahrazani. Razani. Thank you all. Until next time, shalom and play it out.